Good morning, everyone. Good to see you here. For those that are watching online, we encourage you to come and join us here in person. Uh, there's room here, but we also have a very comfortable cafe right next door, and you can sit with the group that's always out there in the cafe and watch uh, with some company. So we just encourage you that we love the fact that you're joining us online, but if you're in the area, we'd love to have you here and to experience the full community of uh, this church. We're taking a break from James as we go through the Christmas and New Year season, and um, I was looking, I only have two Sundays basically, I've got this Sunday and next Sunday, and we're, we're right there at Christmas Eve. And so we're going to just do a sort of a mini two-part series on two very important women uh, in the history of redemption. Uh, today we're going to talk about Ruth, and next week, of course, we'll talk about Mary, and then... You know, Jesus is in both of these stories in in different ways. Um, When you go to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, it's only four chapters long. It's very short. Uh, It's very poetic. It's very narrative. It's a beautiful story. It's my personal favorite uh, in the Old Testament. And when you read Ruth, what you have to realize is that it's actually the story about Christmas. It's the story of the kinsman redeemer and how we are redeemed when we are far away from God and how we are brought close. It's a story when you read it, again, just four chapters. I encourage you to read it this week. It's about hope, peace, joy. It's a love story. And it takes place in the fields around Bethlehem. It really is the story of Jesus, or at least his great, 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 great grandparents. Ruth and Boaz. But God, by telling the story and giving us the account of Ruth in this way, God paints a picture that tells us a great deal about how he worked in the life of his people and his plan of redemption for the whole world. How he caused his will to be done, to bring about events that he planned to bring about. But at the same time, God's able to teach us a great deal about ourselves and Jesus and our relationship to him through the cross in this beautiful story of Ruth. The book of Ruth is really about the coming of Jesus and the gospel, the good news for all people that we have a redeemer and that that redeemer will not fail us. So again, it's just four chapters, and I will lead you through these four chapters, and if you wanted more depth on each one of these, I did a four-part series on Ruth about eight years ago. If you go on the website to the sermon thing and just search for Ruth, you'll get the four-sermon version of this. But this is in one sermon, uh, the picture of Ruth and our kinsman redeemer, and I'll just pray before we begin. Father God, we thank you for Ruth and for Boaz. We thank you for their lives and your account of it that's preserved for us in Scripture. We pray that we would read your word now through the eyes of your Holy Spirit, and that we would be uh, very much aware of what you are telling each and every heart here today uh, through this beautiful story. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So the book of Ruth opens with what could be considered a disobedient family. Uh, When famine and struggle came to Israel and came to them, they left the promised land of God, and they put their hope in a foreign land. They went into the land of Moab, of all places. Moabites were historical enemies of Israel. God told Israel to have nothing at all ever to do with Moab. Uh, Asheroth and Baal worshipers who told God told his people never to mingle with or marry. 
And yet the father of this family, Elimelech, leads his family away from the promised land into Moab, and the sons, his two sons, marry Moabite women. Moabites, not Medebites. Okay, we have many Medebites here from Mediba. Young men, if you want to find a good woman, go to Mediba. Do not go to Moab. Go to Mediba. Medebites make lovely wives. You gotta talk to me first. <laughs> Steve Archibald is the surrogate father of all of them. You will need his blessing. So, our story starts with the mother now, Naomi, setting out to return to Israel after her husband dies and after her two sons die. As well. So they've gone to Moab and disaster has struck. And Naomi, the widow now, is bringing along with her, of all things, Moabite daughter in laws, foreigners. They're all widows with no social standing in Israel. And her one daughter in law, Orpah, turns back to her own family, but Ruth sees the hope that Naomi has in the God of Israel. So Naomi's desire to return to where she belongs. And Ruth wants to know the God of Naomi. She wants to believe in the God that Naomi has so much faith in. And so Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. So we begin with Ruth putting her hope in God. She has no hope in Moab. She has no hope in her family, her departed husband. Ruth's hope is in God. And maybe this is where the story starts to sound kind of familiar to you today. We've all been disobedient to God, and we've all wandered to far countries away from God. And in our disobedience, in those far countries away from God, we may have suffered loss, tragic loss in our life when we were disobedient and when we were far from him. Maybe even run directly away from God into those things. But like Naomi, if you've wandered or run far from God, you can put your hope in God and return as Naomi has returned. Or maybe you were never near to God. Maybe you resonate more with Ruth. Maybe you have always been a foreigner from your earliest days of your life, never darkened the door of a church, never been close to God, been nothing but an enemy to God your whole life, never cared about him, and you feel like a foreigner and a stranger that God would never, ever recognize. But just like Ruth, you can put your hope in God too and see what happens. And the last sentence of the first chapter of Ruth is they're making their way down the road into the land of Israel again and the Naomi and Ruth, Naomi returning, Ruth approaching for the first time as they come to Bethlehem, the final sentence says, it is the beginning of the barley harvest. So we have this little piece of hope that something is going to happen. New sustenance, new abundance is on the horizon. And then chapter 2. So Ruth returns with Naomi. They enter into the land of God's people in chapter 2, where she finds she has to live at the mercy now of God's laws. She's not under Moabite law anymore. She's under Israel's laws. And under God's law, she lives by gleaning in the fields. 
picking at the grain that's left over from the harvesters, and she lives by the mercy not only of the laws of God, but of a man of God, Boaz. And Boaz did not run away from God during the hard times. Boaz stayed in Bethlehem, tended his fields during the famine, continued to pay his workers, and supported his family and others, and followed the law of God. When we first meet Boaz, we see he's a godly man. He greets his workers with a blessing, and he still follows the law of gleaning that was given by God in Leviticus 19. He says, may God be with you, and his workers return the blessing that God would be with him as well. He's a good man. He follows the law of God. He allows them to glean in the fields, just as God's people should. You don't harvest right to the edge or gather the gleanings of your field if you're an Israelite. You leave them for the poor and for the foreigners. And then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. And then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? So Ruth is confused by this godly man. And maybe this story is still sounding familiar. You believers, you Christians here know what I'm talking about. We wandered far from God. And when we returned... We found he wasn't angry, but he was welcoming. That he didn't want to punish us, but we found grace when we returned. We discovered that God wants to care for his people, and God wants to care for us. And I think for a lot of us Christians, when we return to God after wandering, we ask the same question that Ruth is asking. Why? Why, why do I have favor in your eyes after I've been so estranged from you for so long? Why would you notice me when we were strangers? In fact, we never knew him at one point in our life, and yet we find mercy. We find a man of mercy, and Ruth found an unexpected man of peace. And what Ruth does not realize or even hope to be true is that for his part, Boaz has from his side of things, set his eye upon her. Boaz has both compassion and love for Ruth. He doesn't merely allow her to glean in his fields as the other women do. Boaz actually invites Ruth to have lunch with him and to share a meal of rather important significance. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. What could this be a picture of? (laughs) So she sat beside the reapers, he passed her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. It's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful picture of our Redeemer as Ruth, a foreigner, enters into the land of God and meets Boaz, a man of peace, who has both mercy and love for her. Now, this Boaz guy, Ruth discovers from talking to her mother-in-law, Naomi, also just happens to be a relative of theirs. He's a kinsman, uh, and he has the legal right under the law, in fact, the legal obligation to marry her and redeem her situation and bring Ruth into full status as part of the family again. And so that flicker of hope that Naomi and Ruth had at the end of chapter one now seems to have a real means of coming to pass. It's not just an empty hope. It's a hope that's made manifest in Boaz. 
They've already experienced the first fruit of the peace that they can expect to rest in in God's provision and his plans for him, but they won't experience complete joy until this redemption is complete. And that brings us out of chapter 2 into chapter 3. And this is where things get exciting and kind of strange at the same time. It's playing a little bit like a movie script, right? You have the poor foreign women, you have the wealthy upstanding man. It's a Hallmark movie. I mean, let's, <laughs> let's be real here. Hallmark doesn't do it quite as well. But there are chance encounters in the field. There's a twinkle in their eyes. You know, you can see the, the plot developing here between Ruth and Boaz. But, but what happens now? It begins with a very strange incident where Ruth approaches Boaz and puts herself completely at his mercy. You see, Ruth approaches Boaz at night while he's sleeping with the workers on the threshing floor. And she lays down at his feet while he is sleeping in, in that sleeping area. And we have to see what's going on here. The, you have to realize the trust that Ruth is placing in Boaz. Because for her as a woman to be caught sleeping essentially on the bedroll of a man that's not her husband in this romantic starry sky, she has no standing in Israel. She has no standing as a widow. She has no standing as a Moabite. Boaz could have whatever he wanted done to Ruth, done to her, treated as a harlot, whatever. But she trusted in the nature of who she felt Boaz was. And she put herself completely at his mercy, depending on his good character, that he would not condemn her, but that he would rescue her. Which is exactly what Boaz does. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet, clearly startled. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he answers, and now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. So because he's a man of God, because he is faithful, because he is Ruth's kinsman and redeemer and loves her, Boaz says, I will do everything that you've asked of me. Now, this is important for our own story as well, because this is how we must finally approach God. We often make a lot of false starts towards God, thinking that we can somehow come to God on our terms. Okay, God, I'm, I'm finally ready to come to you, but this is how the relationship's going to go. You know? you know, if I'm going to come to you, then these are my terms for accepting you. We think that we can come to God on our terms or that we are somehow negotiating with God for some part of his blessing or that we can maneuver him into granting us his favor without us completely committing to him, that we can somehow hold back a little bit and not fully commit. We want God as our safety net. We want God as a friend who's a benefit to us, but we don't really want him if it has to be 100% on his terms, completely at his mercy. But as we learned in James, God is a rightly jealous God, and he will not share his beloved with lesser idols in your life. We cannot say we truly trust God while we hold on to other safeties, and like Ruth, we have to abandon all other hope and put ourselves completely at the mercy of God. We have to approach God as Ruth has done with Boaz. Ruth knows that she's a foreigner. She knows that she is poor. She has nothing to offer. Even her very presence with Boaz in that situation at night on the threshing floor threatens to compromise the righteousness of Boaz. And it's true with us with God. The exact same. We are foreigners. We are poor. We have nothing to offer. Our very presence 
in the realm of God is a threat to his righteousness. But Ruth is 100% committed to trusting her life on the merciful nature of Boaz. She's confident that Boaz is good and that Boaz loves her and that would be against his nature to reject her. And we have to approach Jesus wholly dependent on his mercy and on his love, knowing that we can earn nothing on our own except what is in his nature to give freely. And when we humble ourselves and we approach Jesus like that, like Ruth approaches Boaz completely at his mercy, then we get the same mercy and grace and redemption that Ruth ultimately gets from Boaz. Now you can just imagine the joy at that moment that Ruth must feel. She put her hope in God and God did not disappoint. She experienced the peace of his provision for the many months of the harvest and now she is fully trusted in Boaz and her prospects are beyond her belief. She can be married to this wealthy man, no longer be a foreigner, be counted as a person of God, an Israelite, and make and and, and that she can be her and make sure that her mother in law is provided for, and that she will have children and they will be cared for. Her life is going to be transformed. She has to be filled with joy at this moment. But hold on, because we're not on the home run stretch just yet here. Because it's not enough that Boaz wants to redeem Ruth. He has to be able to redeem Ruth. Dun, 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 dun. (laughs) Ominous music at this point in the movie, right? Boaz might have had a great heart. Boaz might have had the most compassionate consideration for Ruth. He might have loved her dearly. But he has to not only want to redeem Ruth, he has to be able to redeem Ruth. He has to be the right person. He has to follow the law. He has to be able to fulfill the law. Is Boaz of the right family? Is he the right kinsman redeemer? Does he know the law and can he actually fulfill the law? This is what we find out in chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And to understand what's happening in chapter 4 and in the whole book of Ruth really And for that matter, to understand what's happening in the whole gospel of Jesus and his relationship to us, we just need to know a summary of the law of the kinsman redeemer, the law that Boaz is following here in chapter 4. And so some of these conditions of this law will feel very strange in our cultural context today, but they were for the protection and for the mercy and for the grace towards women in their context uh, in the time of Israel at this time. And it comes in Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10. And I'll just summarize it. Basically, if, if, if there are brothers and, and one of them dies without a son, then his widow is not to marry outside of the family. In fact, her husband's brother is to take that widow because she has nobody to care for her and no family to continue and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. And so if the man doesn't marry her, then the woman takes her complaint then to the elders and basically says at the town gate, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. Basically, I'm not being cared for. I'm now a stranger to the family. He's not fulfilling the duty of a brother-in-law. And if he persists in saying that I don't want her, then she takes one of his sandals and spits in his face and says, this is the one done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. And that man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. Shameful to be called the family of the unsandaled. 
So again, I said this was going to sound kind of strange, but this was done on purpose to protect women who would otherwise have no family and have no family line to continue and be unprotected. And so this is what is taking place here. This is why Boaz is going to the elders at the city gate, because he is the kinsman redeemer. So the story leads us to Boaz at the city gate to conduct some law. And this is what's going to happen. As it happens, there is another kinsman redeemer just down the road. Boaz, you see, this is where things get tricky, because Boaz says there's actually a kinsman redeemer that's nearer to you than I. I'm like a distant cousin. You have a first cousin. You have a something. You have an uncle or a something on the Israel side who is closer to you than me. So I can't redeem you if he is potentially your kinsman redeemer. And we're thinking at this point, when he says this in chapter 3, we're thinking, Boaz, just don't say anything. Nobody knows about this guy. Just marry Ruth. You guys can have babies. Everybody lives happily ever after. Just, you know, ignore that part of the law. But Boaz doesn't ignore that part of the law. He is honest, and he goes to the elders. He goes to the city gate to conduct that law. So here's Boaz sitting at the city gate with the elders. And as it happened, here comes the other kinsman redeemer down the road at the city gate, and Boaz calls him over, and he says, hey, whatever your name is, we don't learn it, have a seat here. And the man comes over and sits down, and this is all in chapter 4. He tells the elders, you guys over here, you sit down too, and and Boaz has this stature where he's sitting with the elders and his community reputation, and 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 he presents the opportunity of Ruth to this guy. In 4, 3 to 4, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab and is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, then redeem it. So here's his chance. The other guy can step in here, spoil the whole love story. He can redeem the land and redeem Ruth along with it. It's a package deal. And the first time you read this, you're hoping that Ruth and Boaz are going to get married and live happily ever after, and you're thinking, he's not going to redeem it, he's not going to redeem it, he's not going to redeem it. I've seen this movie. He can't do it, he can't redeem it. But of course he answers straight out at the end of verse 4, and he says, I will redeem it. What is going on here? Boaz and Ruth have to end up together. Why were you so honest, Boaz? Why did you go through the due process of the law? You're going to miss out. But Boaz says, well, wait, 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 wait. I'm not done yet. Before we start swapping sandals and shaking hands and all of this, when you get the land that Ruth has due to her, you also have to take the the hand of Ruth in marriage. In order to redeem the land of Ruth, you must redeem Ruth and be the duty of the brother-in-law to her. And so the other guy, after he hears that news, he's not up for it anymore. He's like, I want the land but I don't want Ruth. Because here's the deal. When you get kinsmen redeemed like this, you literally become part of the family. She would be due, and her children from him would be due all the inheritance that the rest of his kids would be due. And they would have full title of all of his land and everything else the same way. And he's like, I already got kids, and all of my stuff is going to them. I don't want to have a Moabite woman and have kids by her, and then I have to divide my estate with all those other people. It's just not worth it. I want the land, I just don't want Ruth. In other words, he's not willing to pay the price to redeem Ruth. He'll take her property, but he won't pay the final price for her. 
He doesn't care about Ruth. He doesn't care about continuing Ruth's family. He only cares about himself and his own estate. So at first, this seemed to this kinsman redeemer as a proposition, a a positive proposition for the other man. He thought there was no price to pay for being the redeemer. He thought he could be the redeemer and receive this land and it wouldn't cost him anything. But in fact, he learns that in order to take the place of the redeemer, he has to pay the price. And he has to promise in being a kinsman redeemer to Ruth an equal inheritance with all the other children that bear his name. And so suddenly this man decides that the price is too high a price to pay. He's not going to benefit anything by it. He surely owns far more than what Naomi's come back to after 10 years in Moab, and he's not going to jeopardize that for Ruth. But not Boaz. How completely different from this unnamed relative is Boaz? He loves Ruth. He's not afraid of the cost. Boaz is prepared to accept the cost of redeeming Ruth in full. The redeemers that God provides are always willing to pay the full price to redeem us. So Boaz is going to pay the price to redeem Ruth, just as Jesus is willing to pay the price to redeem us. There's still the question of the sandal. What is that business about? Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. I don't understand it either. You know, it's like when you go to the lawyer's office and you're doing something particularly technical and legal and they're explaining to you all the intricacies of the law and you don't understand a word about what they're saying. You don't understand why the law is written that way. I don't know if you've ever been in any sort of legal situations. We can run into these things. And what happens is we need to get a lawyer who knows the law, who knows everything that needs to be done to make sure all the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed to make sure that according to the law, whatever we have done, it's done correctly and everybody can attest to it. And so for some reason, people exchanged sandals in order to consummate transactions. But the point here is what we have is Boaz who knows the law. Boaz sets up the correct legal situation with the elders at the gate. He engages the nearer relative and gives him the offer to redeem first. He's willing to pay the price of redemption in order to redeem Ruth and take her as his wife. He knows the family line. He knows the proper process. He even knows all the details of obscure details of the law of how to do it by taking off his sandal and sealing the deal by giving it to the other relative to say, here, now you've got my sandal, so I guess now you're not the unsandaled one. Maybe that's what it is. See, Boaz gives him the sandal so that he doesn't get called the unsandaled relative. It all kind of does make sense, actually, when you think about it. So Boaz publicly declares the price he's willing to pay. He fulfills the law in every minute detail in order to accomplish the result. A permanent, covenantal, legal, one-flesh relationship of a bankrupt foreigner into his noble family. And all of this is to show that everything has been done rightly. Boaz not only wanted to redeem Ruth, Boaz was able to redeem Ruth. He was the kinsman redeemer, and he did everything perfectly to the smallest detail according to the law. Beyond reproach or any accusation, there is no crack that any lawyer anywhere in the system can figure out a way to make this illegitimate. The process of redemption has been followed properly and witnessed. Well, why is this so important at the end, the last chapter? 
Why give most of a very short book to this exchange of sandals and weird legal detail? Why spend so much of chapter 4 painting this start of the part of the story? Because it's one thing for Boaz or even Jesus to say, yes, I will redeem you, and then not have any idea of how to do it or any legal standing to be able to do it or not being willing to pay the price to do it. It's one thing to be able to say, yes, I want to. It is a completely different thing to accomplish the redemption according to the law. And Boaz and Jesus are both faithful to do that. The New Testament makes a few references to the accomplishment of Jesus in redeeming us according to the law. And I just want to look at one of them today to see how the actions of Jesus fulfill the law. This is just one way. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, in other words, you are a foreigner, you are not part of the covenant people of God, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, Jesus accomplished something in his redemption of us. He accomplished it legally, spiritually, morally, redemptively, every way you can imagine. Jesus has been willing and able to fulfill what was necessary for our redemption. Jesus said himself in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And in his letter to the people at Colossae that we just read here, the apostle Paul encourages them by explaining that Jesus was more than just a nice guy who wanted to redeem them. Jesus is a kinsman redeemer who is actually able to redeem them legally in the sight of God according to the law to take their debts upon himself and nail it to the cross. In other words, God has fulfilled his own law through our kinsman redeemer, Jesus, his own son. The law of God can't be ignored. It has to be fulfilled. There's no hope for us of ever fulfilling it on our own. Ruth could never do anything to redeem herself as a Moabite woman. She had no standing. There is no hope for her of redeeming herself, and there is no hope for us of redeeming ourselves. Ruth needed a redeemer to lawfully rescue and continue her family line. We need a redeemer to lawfully rescue us, and we can give thanks for the faithfulness of Ruth and Boaz as part of God's plan, because consider how Ruth's faith in Boaz's work of redemption literally lead us to Jesus. The end of chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. Renowned? We're still talking about it 3,000 years later. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. And for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. That's King David, who Mary is in the line of. Ruth is the great 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 grandmother of Jesus. And she was a Moabite. Had nothing to do 
with God, had nothing to do with the covenant, except that God said, I have a redeemer for you. (laughs) And that's us. Whether, like Naomi, we've wandered away from God into a country where disaster has befallen us in our sin, and we're heading back humbly to the harvest, to the life that God has for us, or whether we're like Ruth, and we were born in a far country, which we all were, and maybe we were never close to God. Maybe we're like Ruth, and we were always enemies. Maybe we shook our fist at God. Maybe we worshiped other idols, and we don't think God would have anything to do with us. The story of Ruth is the story of the gospel. It's the story of God's redemption. Whether you're a foreigner, or whether you're someone who is near, who has wandered, God has redemption and life in store for you if you return. He doesn't have punishment and condemnation. He has compassion and love. And he's provided a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. Jesus, that's what Christmas is all about. Jesus comes as a human being, our kinsman. (laughs) He, He comes as our brother, our friend, who says, I am able to redeem. I want to redeem, and I can redeem. And I can go to the cross, and I can die the sacrificial death, and I can give you my righteousness so that you become part of my family, and you inherit everything that my family inherits, just as Ruth and her sons would do from Boaz. Because Jesus is the real Boaz. Jesus is the real David. Jesus is the real redeemer that we have. And that's how he's our kinsman redeemer. And next week, we're going to talk about Mary and her trust in Jesus. Her trust in the baby that she bore, that he really was her Lord and Savior. And that through him, as was promised to Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. That's next week. But this week, this week, think about Ruth. Go home and read it. And I don't know if you're Naomi or if you're Ruth, but either one. I'm just telling you, this is the story that God has been telling us over and over and over and over again. You can tell that I think Ruth's is the most beautiful version of it, next to Jesus's. So go home and read Ruth, and know that you have a kinsman redeemer. And just like Boaz, just like Jesus, he looks at you and he loves you. And he wants to share his life with you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Ruth. As I said, you tell us this story over and over and over and over and over again so that we'll get it. And some of us see it in Joseph and some of us see it in Moses and some of us see it in Ruth and Boaz and some of us see it um, in King David and some of us see it in Jesus. We see it over and over and over again, and all of us see it in different ways. I just pray that this morning, whoever is in the sound of my voice would see it fresh again, that this is what Christmas is about, that we have a kinsman redeemer, that Jesus has come in our flesh to redeem us from our animosity, our foreignness, our wandering, our ignorance, our desperate need for hope. He's come to give us all of that. And not only is he willing to, but he was able to, and he did it on the cross. And we give you thanks for that. 
that you've given us our kinsman redeemer. And we celebrate that at Christmas. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.